You are about to listen to the full interview with Shubham Kanodia. Sections of it were originally included in our Fermi's Paradox episode. Shubham Kanodia is the co-author of the research paper, How Much SETI Has Been Done, Finding Needles in the N-Dimensional Cosmic Haystack, an attempt to quantify how much searching for extraterrestrials we've completed. We dig deeper into Shubham's theory and why it may make sense that we have not found anything yet. We hope you enjoy. So my name is Shubham Kanodia and I am a graduate student in the astronomy department at Pennsylvania State University. And I work on uh, exoplanet research as well as SETI. And how did you get interested in SETI research? So I started working on SETI as part of this graduate course that I took with uh, Professor Jason Wright. And I was initially interested in um, learning more about the field because it's a topic that I guess fascinates pretty much everyone. But I wanted to see how I can uh, contribute to the topic in a more quantitative manner. Through that, you co-authored um, your paper, How Much Study Has Been Done, Finding Needles in the N-Dimensional Cosmic Haystack. What specifically about that topic of trying to quantify how much search has been done drew you to it? So that started off as a project of basically, as it says, how much searching has been done. And there were other aspects of SETI that I, that I could have worked on because we had to do this class project. But this seemed the most exciting to me because this involves some uh, heavy mathematical lifting, which, uh, which, which was needed to come up with this framework, which you can use to take, take all the searches that have been done so far put them in the system and spit out numbers which tell you how effective or how, what fraction of the volume that we calculated uh, do they cover. So we came up, so the, the framework itself is not something that is new in the sense the idea has been proposed. It was proposed in the 80s by Jill Tata. Um, but what we did is we provided a, a lot more rigorous framework where we took all the eight, nine dimensions and put them in one mathematical formula so that you can just take your search parameters, put them in that formula, and the formula will tell you that according to these assumptions that have been made for the framework and for this framework, which is valuing these parameters, this is how effective your search has been. And how does that framework determine <clears throat> um, what parts of the galaxy are searchable from Earth? Like, what is it comparing your search parameters against? So it has nine so the the typical cosmic haystack has nine parameters you have the three distance dimensions you have uh the three distance yeah the three distance dimensions you have the frequency of the transmission so what frequency is it in the radio is it in the optical is it in the infrared and if in the radio which is what we've limited this haystack to which which wave band uh, that's the fourth one then you have the transmission bandwidth so how wide is the signal is it a really narrow band signal? What is the spectral width of the signal? So that's number five. Um, number six, I believe, is the repetition rate. Um, how frequently does the signal get repeated? So that is basically to quantify that if I am staring at this patch of the sky every day for one hour, as an example, will I see the signal? So the signal is repeating once every year, and you're just going to look at it for one month, the odds are you're going to have a hard time trying to find it. Um, so, so that's what the, the period dimension tries to uh, 
capture. Um, then you have the polarization. So what's the polarization of the light? Is it, is it circularly polarized? Is it linearly polarized? And so on. And I think the last dimension is the, the modulation. And that is something we did not cover. We mentioned it, but we did not cover it um, simply because uh, it, it included many things that could not be captured in a very simple and succinct manner. And that involved a lot more calculations that we do not want to go into right now because that also involves um, dealing with what kind of algorithms are used for the searches. And that is something we did not want to include in this framework. Oh, and I guess the last dimension, which is the most important, is the sensitivity. So basically how sensitive is your receiver? So we took these nine dimensions, uh, well, eight dimensions, and then put them together. And so to answer your questions, for example, what part of the galaxy you are looking into? So we made this framework completely agnostic of which direction you're pointing your telescope in, at. Um, there were some other frameworks that have been, some other versions of this framework that have been computed before, which do not look at just your solid angle or how much of the sky you're pointing at, but how many stars are you pointing at? So they tried to quantify um, this dimension in the context of if I'm looking at 10 stars in the galaxy, so that's 10 stars out of, let's say, a trillion stars. So that's your fraction, 10 out of 1 trillion. What we did is we did not look at the number of stars you're pointing at, but just what fraction of the sky. So, so that's how we're quantifying the spatial dimension just what fraction of the sky you're looking at. And that's the reason this is just one way this framework can be constructed. Now, if you, you could have taken another approach and instead of looking at the solid solid angle or the fraction of the sky, you could have looked at the number of stars. Um, and because of the decision we've made, the, the search which is the most, uh, which covers the largest volume in our framework is the one which has a really large sky coverage fraction. So that's just a choice we had to make. And you, you mentioned this cosmic haystack. Can we take a step back and explain what this metaphor of the cosmic haystack is and what are these needles that you're looking for within it? Right. So as I said, the cosmic haystack was originally proposed by uh, Jill Tarter in sometime in the 80s, I believe, when it was constructed as this uh, quote-unquote framework to, to quantify how much searching has already been done. So I believe this was during the time of Project Cyclops um, when they wanted to say that, okay, um, the searching that has been done so far, how do we quantify that? And, and the problem, the reason you need something like this is, so you're starting off by looking in the radio and the radio region of the electromagnetic spectrum but you do not know which part of the radio you need to look into. Should I look into the, the high frequency stuff and the low frequency stuff? Should I look between one to two gigahertz? The most uh, frequently searched region of the frequency spectrum in the radio has been the 1.4 gigahertz because of the water hole. So people need to quanti wanted to quantify that if I'm conducting my search in a particular area, how much of the total fraction can I rule out? Um, so, th so that is one parameter that they, they were they wanted to rule out. Similarly, another parameter is how sensitive. So, suppose you have a telescope that is um, 100 meters across, 
uh, versus if you have a telescope that is 300 meters across and they have sensitivities that uh, scale accordingly. So how, how do you quantify the telescope times? If I'm searching for one hour with a telescope that is 100 meters in diameter versus I'm searching at the same target for one hour with a telescope that is 300 meters in diameter, how do I compare my how effective the searches have been? So the original framework was proposed to quantify these things and put them all in one cohesive manner and they looked at the number of stars, uh, the frequency in which they were looking at, um, and I believe also uh, the, the bandwidth of the searches. So that is done to quantify the existing searches and how valuable would this future, future searches that they were proposing uh, would be. So they wanted to say that, okay, we've done this so far, but what we are proposing to do will be so much better and build upon this. So that is how this started off. And then there have been various versions of this haystack through the years where people have added different parameters and they've adapted it to their searches and, and their studies to say that, okay, this is how our search or how our program compares to the previous explorations. So what we are trying to do is take all of these, learn from them and put them into one cohesive structure. So that's what our framework, uh, our, our haystack uh, attempts to do put everything, combine all these parameters and put them in one framework. Um, and yeah, so the last thing is, as we, so what are we searching for? What we're searching for when we, we construct this haystack is a radio signal. So there's no reason it needs to be just in the radio. It could be in the optical. And in fact, we are thinking about making a similar haystack for upcoming optical searches in SETI. And so we're searching for radio signals, so radio pulses that uh, potential extraterrestrial intelligence civilizations would be sending at us. And what we're doing is we're searching for these radio, and most of the, uh, the haystacks that are constructed, including ours, focuses on fairly narrow band transmissions. So the original thought was that they'll concentrate all of their energy in this really fine region of the electromagnetic spectrum and put a lot of energy in there so you can detect it across interstellar distances. So that's the kind of searches that have traditionally been looked at with these radio searches and that have been quantified using these haystacks, narrow band radio searches that are periodic, hopefully. It's pretty much agnostic as to the direction in which they're coming from. I've heard that radio signals can degrade pretty quickly and that even our radio signals wouldn't reach very far into space. Is that a concern in the SETI search? Is there the thought that maybe, like, what are we looking for in a radio signal and is there any possibility that they may not even be able to reach our planet in a way that we would be able to detect them from a civilization that maybe was at the same stage as us. Oh, definitely. There have been tons of people who have thought about this and have put this into numbers. And the basic thought is that suppose I am sitting in New York and you're sending me a radio signal from San Francisco, you will need a much smaller, uh, your, your power requirement will be much smaller for me to detect than if you were sitting in, say, China and you were using the same telescope or uh, the, the same transmitter. So if I was sitting in New York, I would need a much bigger telescope or a lot more sensitive uh, telescope to, to receive a signal from China than from, say, San Francisco. So the principle is the same. If I, I was sending you a signal from Mars and now you're trying to detect it, it would be a lot easier. So that's what we're doing with the Mars uh, rovers and the probes we have on Mars. But now if you have the same signal at the edge of the solar system, 
you will need a lot more power so that I can detect it with the same telescope. So there are two parts of the problem. One is the transmitter and the other one is the receiver. The bigger the transmitter or the more powerful rather the transmitter is, the easier it is going to be to detect it. On the other hand, if your receiver is bigger and more sensitive, so generally bigger helps because the larger the surface area of the telescope, it helps and uh, it can make it more sensitive, more light gathering capacity. So therefore, a bigger telescope is generally better. Um, so if you have a sensitive receiver, you can detect uh, signals that are much fainter and potentially, therefore, that are coming from much further away. So that's what we try to quantify in the sensitivity uh, dimension of a haystack. So what that says is that if you have a telescope of sensitivity, let's say X, you will be able to detect fainter signals from much closer away. But as you keep moving further away, you, you will need to shout a lot louder. So to put that in another, way, in another way, if you're standing on Mars and you're trying to send me a signal using, say, a flashlight, and I have an optical telescope, I will need a much smaller optical telescope than if you were shining a flashlight from, say, Pluto. So it's the same signal, uh, it's the same principle, but just in the radio. You need to shout a lot louder the further away you are. And you, were you saying you were, you're looking to adapt the framework to work for optical signals as well as radio? Uh, we will be constructing a version of this haystack for the optical in the near future. Yes, that is the plan. When searching for optical signals, what are we looking for that would identify something as potentially coming from um, an extraterrestrial race? Right. So that is a, also an intense topic of research as to say when you detect a signal, be it in the optical or the radio, how do you classify it as artificial and not natural? Because the last thing any uh, SETI researcher wants is to falsely flag a potential signal as artificial when it's just some weird natural phenomena. And we've seen that happen repeatedly um, when we discovered pulsars. We jokingly called them little green men because it was such a strange phenomena which we hadn't seen in nature before. Likewise, now in, in the recent uh, last 10 years, we've seen uh, Boyajian stars, which in, in the Kepler data, which has this transit light curve that we've never seen, of, uh, never seen before. And people started attributing it to uh, extraterrestrial intelligence and potential forms of super advanced civilizations that we do not know about. But now the most likely scientific, the scientific consensus is that it's most likely a swarm of dust or comets or something like that. So people are very worried as well as cautious about how do you think about, how, how do you flag these signals and how do you interpret them? For the radio, one possibility is the, the, um, the, the bandwidth of the signal, how broad, spectrally broad the signal is. So by spectrally broad, I mean, just to give an optical analogy, if I'm shining a laser at you, the laser is quite uh, monochromatic. It just has one wavelength. It has just one color. So I'm shining a red laser at you. It, you're not seeing the entire spectrum of light. You're just seeing a red color. Now, if I'm shining a flashlight at you, that's a white LED, which is emitting from red to the blue. And now you're seeing a polychromatic source. So it's the same analogy in the radio. Most... Um, Searches have been searching for really narrowband signals, which are extremely difficult, or if I'm not mistaken, they are not produced naturally at all. So the, the, trans, the bandwidth of the, the signal is one aspect in the radio. 
Um, another thing people think about in the radio, at least, is that maybe the signal will be repeated at specific at specific periods, which are not likely to be natural. So, for example, if I was trying to get your attention, I would try to uh, shine a flashlight, say for example, but not uh, do it periodically, but modulate it with some weird frequency. So, if I turn my flashlight on once every second. It, it's possible that it's just something far away in the background which you do not care about. But if I was modulating a flashlight such that now it's aperiodic or irregular, that it's on for three seconds and then off. Or an even more extreme example would be if I turned it on and off in say prime number intervals, then it's a pretty much guaranteed sign that what is producing the, the signal is not natural, but artificial. So that's the, the period of the signal, the duration of the signal is one way. If that is modulated, that would be a very clear sign of something being artificial. In the optical, this problem is a little simpler in the sense that if you have, there, there's literally nothing um, in the optical astronomy universe that is extremely monochromatic and extremely powerful, aka lasers. So you do have lasers in planetary atmospheres that have recently been discovered, but nothing um, and, and nothing at the same uh, power, power levels that we're talking about when we consider optical uh, SETI. So if there was a civilization uh, that was trying to get your attention in the optical, and what we assume for civilization is that it will be next to a planet, uh, next, it will be based on a planet next to a host star, so that means the host star is also growing in the optical, so it's really bright. Now you're trying to find you're trying to get my attention from a host star next to which is a planet and you're based on that planet. But now you have to outshine the host star so that I'm not seeing the host star but I'm seeing this weird signal that is coming from next to the host star which I cannot resolve. Um, and so you basically have to outshine the host star. So what we're saying is now you have to produce more energy than the star itself. For a civilization like ours, that is an impossible feat. Now, Kardashev proposed civilizations on, on his various scales, Kardashev type 1, type 2, type 3, and so on, where you have the energy not only of your host star, but of uh, uh, the local cluster of stars, and then you have the entire energy of galaxies and so on. But another way to do it is instead of outshining the host star in the entire, in the entire energy output of the star, you outshine the star in this really narrow wavelength band. So what that means is, suppose I was uh, standing next to the sun, or oh, well, okay, I'm on planet Earth and I'm trying to get the attention of someone far, far away in a neighboring star system. Instead of trying to outshine the sun in, in the white flashlight region, I'm going to shine this really powerful laser that outshines the sun only in this narrow wavelength region of, say, red. So I pick a laser color, and I'm going to make it really, really spectrally pure. So there is no energy that I'm transmitting anywhere else but for this really narrow red region. So if I wanted to outshine my star just in this really narrow region of light, then I would require lesser energy because instead of spreading my energy over, say, the entire optical spectrum from the blue to the red, from the radio to the x-ray, I'm going to concentrate it and shine it just in this red, uh, really narrow red or blue or green region of the spectrum.
So that is one method that has been proposed um, that people are going to be looking for to to search for these really narrow frequency or narrow wavelength um, laser pulses. So it sounds like these optical signals that we're looking for wouldn't necessarily be something that we're accidentally picking up from another civilization. These would have to be intentional signals that the civilization was sending out in hopes for somebody else to recognize it. Well, that's not entirely true. So of, of late, um, we have been, we have started using laser transmissions to, to communicate with our satellites around, around, in orbit around the Earth, right? And we use a laser of a particular frequency, of a particular bandwidth, and of, of a certain power level. Now it's possible that you you will intercept that that you will intercept certain lasers from extraterrestrial intelligence or extraterrestrial civilizations that are accidental that they weren't intending to transmit to you but they were using for communication and that you just happened to intercept. So so the pr one problem with these searches is that there's literally so much that we do not know. We have to make certain assumptions and build upon them. And and that is one thing. So we, and the only priors we have, the only other civilization that we know of is our own. So we try to assume, or we try to base off on how technology has developed for us, and if it was developing in the same manner for another civilization, what would be what would be the potential signatures of that? So it is possible that we do detect these accidental transmission signals, say in the radio or in the laser. But the odds of that happening are quite low. Um, you mentioned in your paper there's a, either a quote or you write yourself about how the search so far has been likened to a cup of water out of the ocean and seeing if we could find a fish in it. Um, could you maybe, and I probably misstated that a little bit, but could you maybe talk to that idea of like how our search thus far has been, is pretty microscopic in terms of everything that's out there? So let me explain give another analogy for this so so you are based in uh san francisco yes that's right okay so suppose i tell you tonight uh that there is this really cool event happening in san francisco um and that if you find that um that will be the best thing in your life and that's going to be this really life-changing thing but i don't tell you where in san francisco it's happening I do not tell you what time it's happening. I don't tell you if it's tonight, if it's next month, if it's next year. I don't, I can't even tell you if it's already happened. But there is this event that might happen there that if you were to find, it would be amazing. I do not tell you what it is. I don't tell you if it's a book reading or if it's a dance competition or if it's a, a band playing, your, your favorite band playing. So I'm giving you absolutely no information. But now I'm going to tell you that if you find it, it'll be amazing and really cool. So now you have to think about, okay, if I want to find this thing, how can I go about uh, narrowing it down? So you would probably play the odds and say, okay, maybe it's not going to be in the middle of the busiest intersection in San Francisco. It's probably not going to be in at noon. So, okay, I will go to, I don't know, a, a music uh, concert venue and see if there's something there at seven in the after, uh, seven in the evening on a Saturday, because the odds are, if it's music related, it's going to be over here. If it's not there, maybe I'll try a library or a bookstore and see if it's a book reading or something. So you 
systematically start narrowing down and eliminating your possibilities. Now what happens, suppose after two days of searching, you say that I have looked into these places and I have ruled these out. So that is what we are trying to do. In the last 40 years or, or, or so that we have been looking, we have tried to quantify that out of the total possibilities, how many have we ruled out? And the reason the total number of possibilities exist uh, are so broad and so unconstrained is because we didn't want to make any assumptions and narrow them down and we wanted to be as agnostic and as wholesome as possible in the sense that we do not want to assume that, oh, they will be transmitting um, from stars, not from empty space. They will be transmitting only in this region of the wavelength band or they'll be transmitting only from one second to one hour, not anything beyond one hour. So we did not want to make any such assumptions. So in the most conservative um, scheme possible, we say that this is the total amount you need to search. So now suppose I, I, I told you San Francisco, if I didn't even tell you that, if I said there's something really cool happening on Earth, now how long will it take for you to search for that? I do not tell you the time, I do not tell you the place, what it is, etc. So that's what the one, I, and I believe it's one tub of water, one bathtub of water in the entire ocean. So the, the, the implicit message behind that is before we say, okay, we've looked, we've been looking for the last 40 years, because that's what many detractors say, that we've been looking for the last 40 years and we haven't found anything. But the truth is the amount we've actually looked in this gigantic framework is so small we can't really say we've ruled anything out. We can't say we've placed any upper limits on, on the broader picture. There have been searches which have looked at the stars, and okay, you can say that this star or this stellar system, we do not see anything that is being transmitted in this wavelength region at this time for the five minutes that we looked. That's the only constraint you can place, but you cannot say anything about that. There doesn't exist a civilization on that star let alone the entire, in the entire galaxy or the, the fraction of the galaxy that you've looked at. Because the fraction you've looked at is so damn small. Do you worry that there's maybe any negative repercussions to framing the search as vast and as hard to identify any signals as the, like this? Like, do you think that's a turnoff to any researchers to even enter the field because it is just so daunting? Well, so what we the number that we placed is more of a, a qualitative estimate to show that how little we've looked. And the quantitative aspect of the framework is to compare different searches that, okay, this search is done this, while this, the other one, which had a different goal in mind, this is how it stacks us. That, that's how you can compare it. But the number itself is not to say that, okay, if we have put in this much effort in the last 10 years, we need to scale it up by a factor of 10 billion to find something. That's not what the, the message behind the number is, that you need to put in 10 to the power 18 more units of effort to find something. It's just to show that this Fermi paradox that we're talking about, that we've looked and looked and looked for the last 40, 50 years and we haven't found anything, is not really true because we haven't really looked that much. And before we make any statements, any such bold statements, um, that we've been looking and we haven't found anything, we should say, we should take a step back and think about how much have we actually been searching and how much effort has been really put into it and how much more should be put into it. Yeah, you mentioned the, the Fermi's paradox. That's actually the topic of our episode. Could you explain in your own words your understanding of what Fermi's paradox is? 
So I think the best way to capture the Fermi paradox is this XKCD comic that I'll, I, I can send you. Um, and what it, yeah, let me just pull it up. Okay. Yep. I have it open. So as you can see, I think that one frame basically captures the essence of the Fermi paradox. Could you maybe just because, um, just because this is going to be audio only and I can definitely link to this in our show notes, but could you maybe just kind of describe what is happening in this image and kind of like what the idea behind it is? Oh, sure. Um, the, the basic essence of the Fermi paradox is that we have been looking for so long and we haven't found anything. And if we say that uh, life should be everywhere and that the, the, the mechanism of formation of life should be fairly ubiquitous, then considering the number of stars in the galaxy, even if the odds are small, the universe should be teeming with life. And then the second point is, um, considering the age of the galaxy, life that has evolved, um, even say a tiny fraction of that age before us and a tiny fraction of billions of years is millions of years or even thousands of years before us, they would have evolved to a stage that they would now be colonizing different stars and different stellar systems and traveling across the galaxy. And if that is so, the whole galaxy um, that we observe should be teeming with life. And since we do not see that, our life probably doesn't exist. Extraterrestrial life doesn't exist. Could you maybe talk about some of the current technological and also societal limitations for our civilization to be able to search for extraterrestrial civilizations? What are some of the obstacles we currently face? I think some of the obstacles we face are technology in terms of we still use rocket fuel um, for um, traveling across uh, the solar system. Something like that is not a feasible option when you want to, when you want to travel interstellar distances. Um, there have been recent uh, projects and studies into looking what if you can use photon energy itself or light from the sun to propel you as a light sail. Then there have been um, searches uh, or there have been projects which are looking into using nuclear powered, uh, nuclear propelled uh, rocket engines and different technologies like that, which would make it a lot more, I wouldn't say easier, but technically feasible to to move across interstellar distances. The second, so the, the main challenge is the technology and that is because of the distances involved. We're talking about the, the closest star it's four light years away. Four light, and each light year is about one followed by 16 meters. We're talking about numbers which are extremely hard to fathom. And because of the distances involved, I don't think we have, we have still reached the point that we can say send a human across interstellar distances. We are still, we're not sure that we can send a human to Mars, which is right next door compared to the stars that we're talking about. Um, we just don't have the technology in the sense and in the context of propulsion, in the context of healthcare, um, or the political, uh, the backing to spend that kind of money to develop that technology. Because right now, I, I guess the powers that be do not see the advantage in that. 
Do you have any future projects planned in the study space? Um, so as I said, one thing that we're thinking about is the optical haystack, which is similar to what we've done, but in the optical region of the electromagnetic spectrum. And another thing that we're thinking of is we're thinking of at Penn State, um, as part of my graduate work, I'm also working on building these uh, two spectrographs called uh, the Habitable Zone Planet Finder, and the second one is NUID, and these are radial velocity spectrographs which will search for Earth-like planets or planets which have the potential to have liquid water, so they're in their Goldilocks zone of their stars. And uh, the, the spectrographs will do this using the technique called radial velocity, which basically takes the light from the star and splits it into thousands and thousands of colors and then sees how those colors move around. Now, a byproduct of doing this is you have what is called a really high-resolution spectrum of the star. So you're taking the light from the star and, as I said, splitting into it thousands of colors. What you can do is once you have this, you, you have a really nice map of the star. And if suddenly in this map you, you see one of the colors, so one of the lines, become really bright, which is exactly what I was talking about earlier when I was referring to the optical uh, signals that could potentially be sent. So you could outshine your star, not as a whole, but in a narrow wavelength region. So we will, uh, we're planning to use these spectrographs with the data that is already there. So we don't need to conduct more searches and spend more money to build new instruments. We just need to look at existing data and comb through it to see if we see any such peaks jumping out. Do you think that there's been any, I know there's been a few signals that have been detected that have caused excitement that have been disproven usually in the end. Are there any signals that have been detected thus far that still remain mysterious and possibly could be extraterrestrial in origin? So I think the only signal that I know of um, that is that had been detected and is still mysterious is the wow signal that was detected in, um, I think, in the 1970s uh, by the radio telescope called the Big Year, which was, uh, I think, uh, built by Ohio State or managed by Ohio State. And it was this really powerful signal. It was, I think, like 20 sigma, so many, many thousands of times more powerful than their background, stronger than the background. And they detected it for a few moments and then it was never seen again. And I think there have been like many hours of uh, radio telescopes looking at that patch of the sky, but they haven't found anything. So that is the only uh, signal that I can uh, talk about. Mm. And that was a radio burst? That was a radio signal, yes. I, I wouldn't call it a radio burst, because we've recently discovered a radio phenomena called fast radio bursts, uh, which is an astronomical phenomena associated with certain events. So we wouldn't necessarily conflate the two because there hasn't been any study that I know of that associates the VAR signal with a radio burst. If any of our listeners were interested in helping to get involved in the search for extraterrestrial life, are there any contributions that people can make to help further this research? Yeah, so... As I was saying, there have been searches done over the last 40 years. There has been great work done by the SETI Institute and recently the Breakthrough uh, Initiative. And what the SETI uh, Institute has is this thing called SETI at Home. The one issue with 
these searches is they're getting so much data the amount of computing power needed to analyze it is simply uh, uh quite limiting and, and and quite a restricting factor so what the seti institute has done is they have kind of crowdsourced data analysis so what you can do is you can download this software called seti at home on your computer on your personal computer and then whenever your computer goes to sleep or goes on to screen saver mode instead of the computing resources lying vacant what it will do is it will download some data from the internet uh, from uh, from radio searches for uh, such signals and try silently run it on your computer and analyze it and then when your computer turns back on it can show you what searching it has done and the amount of data it has looked at and then it will send it back to the servers and add it to the giant collection of data that they've already gone through to to make uh, certain predictions or uh, analysis to say that okay this is the searching we've done and this part of the sky we've looked at is now let's look, look at this part of the sky and so on the so seti at home is uh, one of the best ways that i know that can uh, be helped with and anyone can do it you and i can we can just download this software on our computer it's available on the internet seti at home and it just works in the background you don't need to do anything and it works pretty well that's awesome um give me last thoughts or comments that we haven't touched on i, I think I, i can just end by saying that there are many people who have been working on this and who've devoted a big fraction of their life on this on on this uh search for extraterrestrial intelligence and i think the prime example is chil tata who's been deeply trailblazing and who's pioneered so many of the things that we are now working on um and people often say that okay as i said we've been looking for so long these people have done so much work but haven't we still found anything and i think what we need to understand is the amount of work that is needed and the number of people who are working do not match these people have put in so much time but we need a lot more effort and funding to to make an appreciable dent in this field and the best part is that these searches are not a, a not in a different field from astronomy we are looking at the same sky we are looking using similar instruments So one amazing thing that is happening now in astronomy is we are building these gigantic telescopes and conducting these surveys of the entire sky. You have in the optical you have the large synop- uh, the LSST the last uh, coming up in Chile which is an NSF funded project that is going to get terabytes of data every night. In the radio you have the square kilometer array uh, coming up in the southern hemisphere which is going to be this gigantic radio telescope that we generate like petabytes of data so what um seti needs as a field now is not money to build its own telescopes but there are already so many existing wonderful telescopes that are existing or are coming up in the next few years that it needs the the people power and the computing power to go through this existing data and um and crunch it and make uh, make some analysis and re- crunch the numbers to make some conclusions as to as to what fraction of the sky that we have now ruled out and i'm talking about these gigantic searches because they're going to look at the entire sky day in and day out and that those are the kind of searches that will make a big dent in these numbers these numbers which look so daunting right now 
a telescope like LSST or the Square Kilometer Array in, in the Southern Hemisphere, they will make mincemeat out of many of these numbers. Let us know why you think we haven't found evidence of alien life on our Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on Facebook at strange phenomenon, all one word. Please give us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Visit www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Tarara. It's written and produced by RJ Blake and Ray Tarara. Theme music by Tara Monk.